Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 9, Part 1, From Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II, by Darlene Dibbler-Rose. Chapter 9, Part 1. Margaret Kemp's memory was not improved, but with time, the bruises disappeared uh, from her arms, back, and legs, and after several weeks, the doctors felt that she was physically well enough to return to her work in the sewing room. Valona's physical problems had been taken care of, but her mental condition was such that she needed either to be confined where she couldn't wander off or be put in restraints in the heat of the tropics. Restraints would have been unbearable, so the doctors confined her in a small hut on the edge of the camp. The room was large enough for her to move about in. The door was kept locked, but there was a barred window where she could look out. When I went down to see the hut, I noticed the chicken pens nearby. It came to me that if I were allowed to work with the chickens, I would be near Philoma and could visit with her before and after work. I had not resumed my work as a barracks leader. Rose David was doing very well, and I had been filling in for those who were sick, whatever their work assignment had been. I went to see the nurse and the artist who were responsible for the chicken pens. They were very gracious, and neither Mr. Yamajai nor Miss, Mrs. Justra objected, so I began working regularly with the chickens. I enjoyed the work immensely. One mother hen with about a dozen baby chicks became a real pet. Each morning we let the chickens outside the pen to forage. When it was time for us to leave in the late afternoon, we trilled for them in, uh, to return to the run. The mother hen stood clucking until all the chip chicks gathered about her and then led them off into their pen. One morning, soon after I began working with the chickens, the nurse and I arrived early to find that the mother hen was not out in the run. She was sitting inside the shelter, with her chicks still under her wings. Seeing us, she stood up and said in hen language, All right, let's move out. When they got to the door of the run, we noticed that the hen's neck was bare and raw. It was evident that something had torn her neck and the skin held together in only one small place. A quick count showed that all her chicks were there. Somehow, she had fought off the attacker, but she had nearly lost her life protecting her little brood. Immediate surgery was in indicated, so the nurse went to her barracks for some uh, balsam of Peru uh, and a needle and thread. Uh, by turns, we pulled the skin together and stitched it, all the while crooning to uh, her what a good, brave uh, mother she was. Each time we stuck in the needle, she cried, Rock! but never once struggled to get away. We covered the whole neck with balsam, or a balm of Peru, to keep off the flies and preclude in infection, 
The surgery was successful, and the patient survived. While the chickens forged, we collected the chicken manure on bamboo mats to sun-dry. We pounded the dry manure in a large wooden mortar with a six-foot-long uh, pesto. With our hands, we scooped it out of the mortar and into the selve, uh, sieve, uh, making sure that no chunks remained. The powdered fertilizer, once bagged, was sent to Makassar for the Japanese flower gardens, knowing that we could collect the eggs for the hospital to be given to the critically ill, made our task far from uh, onerous. Uh, one afternoon, returning from the barracks, I stopped, as I usually did, to talk to Philoma. Uh, she was holding onto the bars of the windows, swaying back and forth with her eyes closed. I looked at her gray hair, uncombed, hanging down her back. She was partially clothed, but when I became aware of what she was saying, it broke my heart. What indignity and pain she must have suffered. I turned quickly away and dropped onto a log near the hut. Putting my hands over my ears, I began to sob. Oh, Lord, how can this be? How can this happen to Philoma, a woman of such faith? Why did she have to suffer such terrible humiliation? Suddenly I felt a touch on my shoulder. It was Mr. Yamajai on his bicycle. I don't know where he came, uh, or when he came, or how long he had been there. I jumped up, desperately trying to wipe away my tears. Don't cry, Junja. Uh, she doesn't know what she's doing or saying. What's more, why are you grieving like this? You trust in the Lord. That rebuke came from him was exactly what I needed. Coming or coming from him, that rebuke coming from him was exactly what I needed. I'm sorry, Tuan. You're right, but it's terrible to see Nana Seely uh, like that. He sat for a moment, looking off in the distance, nodding his head, then rode away. I went back to Philoma, placed my hands over hers, and softly called her name. She became, became quiet as I prayed for her. She looked at me and smiled. I knew she re recognized me. I returned to my work, wondering if Mr. Yamajai really understood what it meant to trust in the Lord. When Philoma became mentally stable enough to be allowed to move into one of the stone houses with Margaret, Mrs. Jaffrey, and three other women, my reason for working with the chickens to be near her no longer existed. Uh, Philoma helped care for more than 200 ducks outside the boundary of the camp. My heart was at rest concerning Philoma's progress, so when Rose David asked me to resume the leadership of the barracks, I agreed. Rose wasn't feeling well, and the doctor suspected a heart condition. I had gained a little weight and felt better. I'd continued to fill in for the sick and function as barracks nurse. In the early months of 1945, there was increased air, air activity on all sides of the camp. More and more nights were spent in the slit trenches, we had dug. Daytime raids became more frequent. We witnessed a second dogfight just beyond the camp. A Japanese plane was shot down and crashed in flames. 
we had learned the hard way not to vocalize our cheers. Night after night, from our trench-side seats, we watched the Allied planes caught in the searchlights coming in to drop their bombs. Desperately, we prayed that the planes would escape the anti-aircraft shells bursting around them. When we saw them slip through the ack-ack without breaking formation and apparently unharmed, we slumped down with thankful hearts and closed our eyes, waiting for sleep or the bombing raid to come. Even if it rained during a raid, we dared not return to the shelter of the barracks. Seventeen inches of loaded to each person in the trenches didn't permit reclining or moving about. By, moving, uh, by morning, we were desperately weary. Those were suspense-filled, nerve-wracking nights. We became quite adept at telling time by the position of the Milky Way and the Southern Cross. I often thought of Genesis 1.16. He made the stars also. No room for doubt as to the origin of those stars. They are the work of his hands. I thrilled to their beauty, but I worshipped their creator. We waited with anticipation for the rising of the magnificent bright morning star. Even as we awaited the coming of the bright morning star, our wonderful Lord Jesus. Daytime raids also became more frequent. One afternoon in mid-July, when all the school children and most of the women were out of the barracks working, a plane flew low over the edge of the camp, so low, in fact, that we could see the pilot in the cockpit and the American flag and insignia on the fuselage. It was as if the crew had avoided coming directly over the camp, so we felt that they knew it was a camp for women and children. However, when the plane circled and came in again, even lower, we stood awestruck and mute watching it. Then, in an open area of the camp, the pilot dropped a large metal object, turned and took off into the wild blue yonder, waggling the wings. The object didn't explode. But what was it? I felt anger rise in me, thinking how easily he could have hit one of the children. Was he blind or drunk? Could he, couldn't he see the women and children? The object proved to be a, an auxiliary fuel tank. What was going on? What was the message conveyed by dropping an empty fuel tank? Never in the more than three years of our stay had we received letters from home or Red Cross packages, nor had any pamphlets found their way into the camp to tell of the progress of the war. Each year there had been a series of air raids. Sometimes it seemed we would spend the rest of our days locked behind the barbed wire. Work on the air raid shelter between the hospital and the camp commander's office had been accelerated, yet we avoided being inquisitive about anything where native workmen were involved. So the auxiliary fuel tank was wrestled out of the way, and normal camp life was resumed. Two days later, early in the afternoon of July 17, we heard the sound of many planes. The air raid alarm was sounded. We all ran for the trenches and sat to watch the planes. Then we headed straight for our camp. The planes were silver and had double fuel lodges, 
and they were dropping silvery, silvery objects. Some of us were yelling, chocolate bars. Others were crying, canned goods. Still others screamed, pamphlets. All of us were seeing illusions of the things we longed for most, food and news. Our joy was short-lived, for suddenly we recognized the whistling of bombs. In minutes, our whole camp was in flames. I jumped back into the uh, slit trench, but the second my feet hit the bottom of the trench, the Lord said to me, You borrowed Mrs. Lye's Bible. Mine had fallen apart. You're right, Lord. I have no right to let her Bible be burned. Jumping out of the ditch, I ran into the burning barracks, scrambled up the ladder, grabbed her Bible off my bed, dropped to the floor, and ran outside to get out from between the burning barracks and the dining shed, not knowing in which direction they would collapse. I saw Rose David standing in front of me. Darlene, where did where do we go? She cried. Wherever we looked, there was fire. I don't know, Rose. Oh my God, if you don't know, who does? Just then, I saw the gate leading out of the camp had been opened. Women and children were fleeing across the moat and over the embankment. Rose, the gate's open. Come, run. As we neared the gate, I saw that it was the brain who had opened it and was standing guard. My insides turned to water. No, Lord, please don't let him recognize me. I turned my face away and ran, trusting that he wouldn't notice me. No sooner had we crossed the moat and the road that, than, we had, than we realized that the camp was surrounded by hundreds of Japanese soldiers with their machine guns set up on the embankment ready to fire on the planes as they circled to make their second bombing run on the camp. We learned later that there were thousands of Japanese soldiers who had withdrawn from the other islands to make their last stand on the island of Celebs. Running down into the midst of the soldiers, we thought only of passing through as quickly as possible into the surrounding rice paddies when uh, were, were we uh, saw others of the women and children. Tidor, lie down, screamed the Japanese as they turned on us with their guns. And Tidor, we did. Not another step. Wherever we happened to be, we threw ourselves prostrate on the ground. A bayonet jabbing at my back was a great persuader. If we were in the soldiers' way, they ran over us and began firing at the planes. The planes immediately circled, coming in low to, stri to strife the Japanese and knock out their machine guns. Bullets were flying all around as 23 planes passed over. How could the stray bullets miss us? I braced myself, knowing that it was altogether possible I could be hit. Dropping my head onto my arm, I whispered, Lord, if anyone is alive at the end of this day, it will be a miracle. God wonderfully ministered to me through a song in this time of terror. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, O oh, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing.
Suddenly, the shelling stopped and no one was moving. Looking up, I could see the planes disappearing in the east. God, it's a miracle. I'm alive. I'm alive. Thank you for overshadowing me. The Japanese burst into activity, grabbing their machine guns. Then they disappeared across the rice paddy. As I stood up, I saw Ruth with other women and children from our barracks emerging from their hiding place beyond the long grass. Ruth was carrying her Bible and a small bag of things she had prepared and had been able to retrieve from the barracks before it had been hit. I suggested that we return to see if we could find our spoons, tins, and other belongings in the ashes. We could see nothing of Margaret, Kemp, or Lillian. We crowded through the gate and returned to where the barracks ate had been. I stopped in front of where my bed would have been when it dropped to the ground burning. There on the top of the heap of ashes lay my bride's book, my beautiful bride's book that I had carried with me all these years, sewn inside the native sleeping mat. Somehow, no, not somehow, but by my father's ordaining, the fingers of the flame had peeled away the mat and flicked through the pages to the centerfold where my marriage certificate was written in gold ink. I gasped. It was so beautiful, that bright, shining gold ink on the black, charred page, gold purified by fire, glittering in the rays of the late afternoon sun. I dropped to my knees and reached out, but the moment I touched the book, it disintegrated and was gone. I rocked back on my knee my heels and in anguish cried lord that was the only thing i had left couldn't i have had that just that one thing i covered my mouth to keep from screaming i closed my eyes and crooned father oh father gently so gently he answered me my child that's what i want to do with you make you like pure gold even if I have to take you through the fire seven times. I was shaken to the depths of my being when I absorbed the enormity of what he had said to me. Oh, Father, seven times? I don't have anything left to give you but myself. I felt his arms of love lifting me up. I stood to my feet, slashing at my tears, for I heard Ruth calling to me. She had found a green papaya that had cooked in the fire. She broke it open and, with our hands, we stripped off the charred skin and ate. Sifting through the ashes, I found a small teaspoon and a dessert spoon, birthday gifts from friends of my barracks. The watch uh, Russell had given me and three lockets, gifts from the Jafferies. By this time, we were very dirty from the juice of the papaya and the ashes. There was no water to be had from the well, as the ropes on the buckets used for drawing water had burned. At, as best we could, we wiped our hands and faces on our work suits. I heard someone sobbing, looking around. I saw the leader of the barracks seven crying. I went over and put my arm around her. My mattress burned, she sobbed. It was just a thin pad she had been allowed to keep because she was an older woman. Oh yes, everything has burned, 
but we're still alive. We have much to thank God for, I reminded her. But I didn't leave it in the barracks. I threw it in the ditch where you always lie. I felt the hair stand up on the back of my neck, and a chill went through me. Walking over to the edge of the ditch, I looked down. There, where I had been crouching, was the casing of the bomb and the ashes of her mattress. I walked away, unable to talk. So great was the sense of awe that had come over me. Lord, it wasn't Mrs. Lye's Bible you were concerned about, was it? You knew that was a way to get me out of that ditch, to save my life. Father, whatever is left of life to me, it's yours. It all belongs to you. Mevro Dibbler, Mevro Dibbler, Freddy's been hit. They're taking him to Makassar. One of our boys called. Ruth and I ran over to the group of young people. They all began to talk at once, telling how they had been in the trenches at the far side of the camp with one of their teachers, an older woman, when the planes began to drop the bombs. Freddy had been lying face down next to the teacher, who, on hearing the plane's approach, had thrown herself across the upper part of his body. However, the bomb hit Freddy, passing through his right buttock and almost completely severing the right leg from the torso. The bomb had not detonated, thank God, or all of them would have been sprayed with the gasoline jelly and, in all probability, burned to death. The vehicle that had just left the camp was taking Freddy to Makassar for surgery, along with another young woman whose leg had been severed below the knee. Freddy's mother, Sarah, had not been allowed to accompany him. I felt sick with grief for Sarah and Dolly, Freddy's sister. We stood and looked at one another, weeping silently. The doctors and nurses who had sheltered with the hospital patients, Mr. Uh, Yamajai and the second in command in Mr. Yamajai's bomb shelter were going through the ditches, giving sedatives to the burned patients. Then they immersed them in the long uh, cement hospital water tanks in an effort to see ease the pain. There was no screaming or loud crying. After more than three years, we had become a people who were no strangers to suffering. Dear Lord, Comfort these people. Ease their hurt, I prayed silently. The stillness was broken by Japanese soldiers gesturing and yelling, Pigai! Pigai! Go! Go! Go where? All the bamboo structures had burned, and much damage had been done to the cement houses. Waving their arms, they indicated that we should start moving in the direction of the area where the barracks, one through six, had formerly stood the barbed wire fence had been cut. We were herded through the opening across a rice paddy and up into the surrounding jungle. Much to our amazement, there, hidden among the tall trees, were new bamboo, mat-walled, grass-roofed huts. So the Japanese had been expecting our camp to be bombed. We said to one another, a little clearing had been done in the area so the huts would not be would not have been conspicuous to us from the old camp or to the allies from the air. We found the one-room shack designated for barracks eight for in two, uh, 
Fortunately, the huts had been built up off the ground because it was uh, very damp in the jungle. Uh, emotionally drained and physically exhausted, we crawled inside to sit and wait for families and friends to find one another. Margaret Kemp and Lillian were there waiting for us, looking very pale and weary. They each had a little bag of items that they had carried to work with them each morning. I, I looked about me, trying to decide how we were all going to fit in this limited space. At least we would have a little more room than in the trenches. Maybe we could stretch out to sleep. That would be a blessing. The floor was made of two-inch wide bamboo strips tied together with rattan about an inch apart, providing easy access for the wind, the mosquitoes, and all the other creepy crawlies of the jungle. If the floor had been designed for a bed of torture, the builders outdid themselves. There was spring to the bamboo, but it was no beauty rest. Someone passed the word that the kitchen crew was preparing something to eat, rice, vegetables, and whatever could be salvaged from the burned-out kitchen had been dumped into drums and cooked with water to reappear as a vegetable gruel. We were grateful for whatever was available, and we had long since learned that our cooks under Mrs. DeJong had the genius of making whatever they cooked tasty. Having eaten, we set inside or we set aside our tins, plates or whatever had been retrieved from the ashes and wandered back to use the now open air latrines. Water was hard to come by, so we shrugged our shoulders and said, No water, no towels. So we bathed tomorrow or whenever. Margaret Jaffrey, her mother and Philoma had lost none of their possessions. Their stone house had sustained some damage, but hadn't burned. Margaret cut her blanket into three pieces to share one-third with Margaret Kemp and Lillian, one-third with Ruth and me, saving only one-third for herself. We were very grateful to her, as all our blankets had burned. Knowing it would soon be too dark to see, I suggested that we go inside and mark out our territories. It was important to have those who had to get up at night and families with small children near the door in case of necessity or an air raid. There were now no lamps and no bamboo pots. Never had our hearts been so united in prayer as that night. I had Mrs. Lee's Bible, but it was too dark to see, so I began quoting uh, one of the Psalms that had been most often on my lips during the those difficult years. Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble 
he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. Verses 1-5 through five. Lord, if, we, if ever we needed a place to hide, we need one now. There was, there were subdued, subdued cries, or sobs here and there, as I finished the psalm and prayed for the bereaved, and especially for Freddie and his family, that God would ease their pain and suffering. And please, Lord, for the sake of the children, let there be no air raid tonight. There's no moon, and we don't know this area, so where would we hide? Please, Lord, don't let the planes come tonight. The amens. Like a gentle wave swept through the building, it being the year of the very lean body, our thinly padded bones found little comfort, no matter how we twisted or turned. Most of us were wearing our work shorts and sleeveless blouses. Without nets, we had no protection from the myriad of mosquitoes. My legs and arms were on fire, and from the scratching I heard I knew others were suffering the same discomfort. The mewling of the little ones was distressing, but thanks be to God, there was no air raid, not even this distant sound of planes to disturb them. Finally, the heavy breathing told me that most of the people had drifted off into the deep sleep that follows total physical and emotional exhaustion. There, in the dark hours of that night, I walked into the sanctuary of my heart. The lamps fed by the oil of the Spirit were burning brightly. My precious Lord, I have come to worship and adore you. This has been a day like no other I have ever known. Today has marked the final stripping away of every transient a treasure I possessed. I have nothing but this dirty, faded, blue-gray work suit. But never have I felt so privileged, so blessed, or so rich. I thought of the many nights spent in the trench, looking up at the night sky. I reveled in the magnificent display of, in the heavens, the stars, the moon, and the planets, and I wondered how much, or how such, and I wondered how such a one, the great creator, could have a personal interest in me, a young woman without any special gifts, talents, or beauty. Sometimes the very magnitude of his handiwork made him seem almost remote. But that night, that one, the high and lifted up Holy One of God, wearing his most magnificent robe, a robe of human flesh, came to dwell with a child of man in a new and beautiful relationship. Oh, the wonder of his love for me and his personal concern for me as an individual was overwhelming. Together we walked through the events of that day. I heard again the insistence in his voice as he reminded me of Mrs. Lee's Bible. Not my bride's book, nor my uh, full five-year diary. It had to be Mrs. Lee's Bible that was lying on my bed directly above the ladder. Then it became clear to me why he didn't remind me of either of the two books, neither of which could ever be replaced. I would have been up there, tearing at the mat trying to retrieve them, and without doubt the burning building would have collapsed on me. I just escaped as it was. Oh Lord, you saved my life. 
Thank you for reminding me of this Bible. I hugged it to me, for Mrs. Lee had said I should keep it. I had much to be thankful for. Of all the Japanese I had ever had any contact with, none terrified me more None terrified me like the brain. I poured out my gratitude to God that the brain hadn't noticed me when I passed through the gate. I thanked him for the miracle that none of us was killed or hurt during the machine gun strafing. I knelt again before my bride's book, lying open on the heap of ashes. I saw how bright and shining the gold ink had become. The gold had to pass through the fire to destroy the tarnish and it was the background of a black charred page that displayed its beauty, a beauty I had never noticed, written as it had been on a bright white page surrounded by pretty flowers. I understand, Lord. I really do understand what you're saying to me through this. Forgive my tears. I learned that my tears were a gift from him to ease the hurt, a gift to be shared with others who were hurting, was I not to weep with those who wept, or, or with those who weep? Romans twelve fifteen. When the tarnish begins to appear, take me through the fire, Lord. I'm available. One by one, he pulled scripture passages out of the storehouse of my memory to remind me that they had been hidden there for just such a time as this. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Isaiah forty eight ten. This verse called to remembrance my Lord in a blazing furnace with three young Hebrew men. Uh, there was something so pugnant, so intimate about the privilege that was theirs of walking around in the fire with their Lord. Because of the testimony, the faith and the courage of three young men, the king and the crowd of the king and a crowd of people caught a glimpse of Jesus when they emerged from the furnace. There was no acrid causet scent of fire upon them, just the fragrance that emanated from three young people who had been walking with their Lord in the furnace of affliction. That's very important, isn't it, Lord? I pray that if I come out of this war alive, I may be sweet-smelling, not bitter or cynical, but like a sweet-smelling fragrant incense unto you all this long day. You have walked with me, and never for a moment have I been out of your sight. Of this you have made me keenly aware. I saw again in my mind's eye the bomb canister there in the ditch among the ashes of a mattress, and I knew how much my Lord loved me. Singing what has come to be my Lord's lullaby for me, I fell asleep. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that loved to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me, it is so. O oh, this full and perfect peace, O oh, this transport all divine, in a love which cannot cease, I am his, and he is mine. At first light the next morning, Ruth found herself in full possession of her uh, mutual piece of blanket. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess I didn't realize how narrow it was, she apologized. That's all right, Ruth. You uh, flounced sooner and stronger than I did, and I didn't have the heart to wake you up. It was good to be able to laugh from 
Then on, we fell asleep back to back with the piece of blanket covering our topsides. Whoever flounced first usually stayed in possession of it till morning. Next time, part two of chapter nine.